One Hope Church. It's good to see all of you, and I'm glad to be back preaching. Um, I, I think most of you know that I was in Mexico, and down there, the, the first Sunday I was there, they gave me like a 10-minute warning for the first message, so I'm really glad I had ample warning for this. Um, so as, as you know, we're in Ephesians. Today we're doing um, 4, 17 through 19. Um, so let me open us up in prayer real quick, and then we'll read our passage. 17 through 32, sorry. God, we thank you um, that we can open up your word. We thank you that we can learn about who you are. We just ask that um, you would be the one speaking this morning and that we would be changed by your word. Lord, it is truly not enough just to, to listen and to understand more. But Lord, we... We must be transformed by it. So I ask for your spirit, um, who is the only one that can transform us. I ask that he would come and be present here, that we would walk out of this room more in love with you than when we walked in. We walk out of this room um, desiring to obey you more uh, than when we came. Lord, we are humbled by the fact that you have allowed us to gather, you have allowed us to read your word, when there are so many who, who will die even today, never having heard your word. So we thank you, and we just ask that we would take full advantage of this great privilege that you have given to us. And we pray all of this for the glory of your Son. Amen. All right, so let's begin by reading. We'll just read straight through Ephesians four seventeen through 32. Um, so, yeah, let's go ahead and read. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in him, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ 
forgave you. So I, as you know, I have not been here for the rest of the Ephesians messages, and I haven't heard them. Um, but I, I wanted to very briefly outline kind of the bigger picture. So someone has, might, might have already done this, but... Um, so I'm sure someone has said, you know, chapters 1 through 3 is about, you know, more gospel things or um, less practical things, you might say. 4 through 6 is more Paul's instructions. So within 4 through 6, um, you have this phrase that's repeated, therefore walk. Um, so in 4.1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner. Um, 4.17 now this I say and testify that um, you must no longer walk. And then 5.15, look carefully then how you walk. Um, so it can, this, this next section, 4 through 6, can be divided by these, these walking phrases. Um, so I think foundationally we must understand what it, this metaphor means. What does it mean to, to walk um, a certain way? It's, um, it's found in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Leviticus 18, uh, 1 through 5, we have God talking about walking according to the commandments. So it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So this idea of walking is much, um, it's much more than just um, like a, a one-time occurrence. It, you know, the, the metaphor is quite obvious. It's, it's habitual. It's something, your pattern of life, your lifestyle. Um, so there are people in the Old Testament, again, for example, that said that they walked in um, integrity or with a pure heart, one of them being David. So 1 Kings um, 9.4. So the, I think David is a really good example for how we can understand this, this walking metaphor. Because all throughout the scriptures, it says that David was someone who walked according to the commandments, someone who um, followed God with his whole heart. So 1 Kings 9.4 uh, 9, says, And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules. So one, one big question is, um, did David do this, right? So a lot of people will say, okay, well, David, you know, killed Uriah, committed adultery, took the census at the end of his life. Um, how can the scriptures say that David walked according to the commandments and statutes if he did these things, right? And so this is crucial for us in understanding Ephesians. The walking metaphor does not have to do primarily with one-time occurrences, right? So David made very big mistakes, but they, they weren't a pattern of his life, right? He, if you looked at his overall life, he walked according to all the commandments. And this is the same type of thing that Paul is thinking of here. Um, and this is, these are the passages where you know, he's drawing this metaphor from. So for us, when we talk about you know, walking according to, uh, I mean, in this particular passage, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So 
The walking here has to do with the Gentiles' pattern of life. So one one um, note about... Well, let's look at one more passage for this, because I, I think this is actually is really important. Um, this metaphor is used a lot in the scriptures. So First John um, 1, 6, and 8, I think is, again, a very good example. So verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him... This is First John 1, 6... If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, if we're continually walking in darkness, we were not practicing the truth. We, were, we don't have fellowship with him. But in verse 8, it says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, this idea of walking in the light or not walking in darkness doesn't have to do with never sinning. Right? It has to do with your overall um, general lifestyle of obedience. So that's enough about walking, but we're going to come back to this idea. Um, again, like I said, it comes up um, throughout this last part of Ephesians. So in 17, um, we see that the Gentiles are walking in the futility of their minds. <clears throat> so this is a, kind of a side note. I don't really like the translation Gentiles as much. Um, I, I, if you, the, the same word could be translated as nations. Um, and so I, I think it's more helpful to think about, the Gentiles to me are, are a singular category, right? They're non-Jews, right? But the nations are very diverse, right? So this is, all the nations are, are walking this way naturally. Um, one one other quick point about this term, and we we can see the um, it's used in a variety of ways. So obviously here it's it's used something as equivalent essentially to unbelievers, right? Um, it's not always used like that. It's you can't just assume Gentile equals unbeliever. Um, here that's how it's used, and sometimes Israel is a term that's used for for believers. Um, so. Again, this is kind of a more general point, but it just shows we need to be very careful about um, the context in which we're reading these words. Gentiles here, clearly um, unbelievers. There are other passages we can go to where you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Um, so the way in which they're walking is, in particular, according to the futility of their minds. So this is... a. Uh, a huge thing for Paul in general. Um, he he views everything, all all of your lifestyle, all of your um, actions as flowing from your mind, right? Which makes sense. We we live according to how we think normally. Um, you know, of course, there are exceptions to that, but in general, he says that you know if you have a corrupt mind, then you're going to live accordingly. And if you have the mind of Christ, then you're going to live like Christ. So here he says that they have feudal minds. This is also he also says this in Romans one twenty one, where he talks about um, the Gentiles living. Uh, it's a, a very well known passage. You know they they do um, they worship the crea- creation rather than the Creator. They're idolaters. Um, do all kinds of things. You can we can read that on our own time. Um, the point is that 
having this corrupt mind leads us to sin. So then what, what Paul is suggesting by this is that in order for us to, to fight sin, the battle starts in our minds. Um, so this is, again, huge for Paul and something that we will, we will come back to. Um, and something you can see throughout Paul's letters. So, so verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So, again, why, why are people separated from God? Right? They're, they're darkened in their understanding, um, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. So this is something that I think is uh, really hard for us to understand, something that's just hard in general. Um, ignorance is not an excuse for not obeying God. It's not given as an excuse. So in Hosea 4, 6, for example, it says, um, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So his people... Um, no, no longer have knowledge, and so they are punished for it. Um, again, this makes us, uh, or maybe it's just me, but this makes, no only makes me a little bit uncomfortable, right? To say you punish someone when they don't, they don't know, they're ignorant. Um, you can see the same thing in, in Romans 1, again, um, in, in Romans one twenty, so again talking about the futility of of the the Gentile, the futility of the minds of the Gentiles. Verse twenty says, "For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." So the idea is that ignorance, according to the scriptures, is um, it's not. Uh, unintentional right so ignorance is intentional you intentionally are ignoring who God is you have a lot of evidence for who God is and you are pushing that evidence aside and you are choosing instead to be ignorant so because you're choosing to be ignorant God is holding you accountable for your ignorance right again that is a Again, I think it's a tough thing for us to, to swallow, but that's, that's what the scriptures say about it. Um, for us, though, it's, again, it's, um, it's comforting in a way because we can choose to not be ignorant as well, right? You can go outside, again, you can choose to look at the creation and worship the creator, right? So we have that opportunity um, constantly to to rid ourselves of this ignorance. So, verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, this is the... So, we've said that the Gentiles are... um, They're futile in their minds. They are um, alienated from God because of their ignorance. And then in 19, we have the result of this, this uh, mindset. They've become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, and they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So sensuality, um, 
is an interesting one. It again in the scriptures, it's usually viewed as as a negative thing. Um, so you you know, it essentially means to give into your sensual pleasures um, for their own sake and without restraint. So it's interesting because there really isn't any, and we'll see this again later in Paul, but there really isn't any emotion that we've been given by God that's bad. So hatred is a good thing. Like it, it, you, you can't, well, it's, it's not a good thing, it's a neutral thing. You can't look at something like hatred and say, oh, this is, this is a bad emotion, right? The problem with hatred is that it's directed towards the wrong thing. You should hate your sin with a passion. You should loathe it. I mean, there, there's no amount of hatred um, that would be bad to have for something that is evil, right? And the same thing goes with, with our senses. Like, the, the senses that we've been given by God are, are not in themselves bad. There's no sense that you can possibly have that would be bad. It's just that we twist them and use them for the wrong thing, right? And so what, what has happened um, to the Gentiles, because their minds have become futile, they use their senses in a way that is ungodly. They use their senses, rather than to, to worship God, they worship the sense itself, right? And that's where, where they err. And again, you can see this, I mean, it is, you know, so, so prevalent in our culture. I mean, you, you don't, um, if you see a commercial for, let's say, a Whopper, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to appeal to your senses, right? They will, not that I have seen, um, I don't think they have ever come out with a commercial that tries to appeal to your senses and then tries to redirect that sense up to God, right? I haven't seen a commercial like that. Maybe, maybe there's one out there, but that's, that's the idea, right? The, the advertising companies are trying to get you to worship the sense for itself, right? Rather than seeing the sense and seeing God in it, right? But that's, that's the, the biblical way to look at these, these senses of ours is, is not that we should even um, repress them, but that we, we need to channel them in the right way. So the problem is that the Gentiles, because of their ignorance, they're not, they're not doing this, right? And it means that they are essentially unfit to worship God. So, um, again, the greed to practice every kind of impurity, this, um, this word impurity, it's, it comes from, um, it's often translated in the Old Testament as unclean, Right? Um, so the, the idea in the Old Testament for being unclean was not that you were inherently um, you were inherently like different so you know if, if you had well you were but okay so if you had a skin disease for example right you were considered to be unclean that doesn't mean that you were inherently more sinful it means that you were at that time, unfit to worship God because of how different God is, right? God um, represents perfection in, in everything, right? The skin diseases represented imperfection. And so you were unfit to come into perfection when your body was um, seen as imperfect. So it's the same idea here, right? When you have a corrupt mind, when you are using your senses... 
um, to, to worship the creation rather than the creator, you are unfit to worship God. You are unclean in that sense. So this is, this is how the Gentiles naturally walk. Um, so this is 17 through 19. 20 through 24, we're going to see um, you know, the opposite. The, so we're going to see the, the new person. And then 25 through 32, we're going to see this, the contrast between the two. So starting in verse 20, it says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Um, this is quite an interesting phrase. It's uh, not found... A phrase like this is not found in the New Testament. Um, learning a person. So what, what, does, it, what does it mean to, to learn Christ? So I think... This is, again, an idea that comes up in Paul so, so often, um, I would say, in the whole New Testament. But the idea is to, to imitate him. Um, you know, it, verse 5-1 in Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God, right? The, the standard that Paul and, and the New Testament writers consistently give for our, our lifestyles, for our manner of living, is God. That's our standard. Um, almost, almost always. That, which is obviously a huge thing. Um, and again, I keep saying we'll come back to it, but we will come back to it. Um, I want I want to touch really quick on on the word Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. Um, again, I think this is something that's difficult for us to. To grasp because of um, our Christian culture, um, the word the word Christ, what it, it was never I would argue it was never used as um, a, a name like like in, the, in today we use it as a name that's almost vacuous of meaning right like we can just say interchange Jesus and Christ and it doesn't really matter. Um, it was not used like that then. So it had a meaning. And the meaning was, you, you, many of you know, like, you know, the anointed one, the Messiah, um, but specifically it was pointing to the king, right? The king who would come in the line of David, right? That was the, the next anointed one. So when, when um, in verse 20 it says, but that is not the way you learned Christ you could substitute Christ for king. That is not the way you learned the king, right? The idea is that if, if the king is walking a certain way, his subjects must also walk in that way, right? And this is not like an option, right? You don't, if you're a subject of a king, you don't have an option of not obeying the king. And again, this is something hard for us to understand because we don't have people like this. But back then, you, if you disobeyed the king, you, you died, right? I mean, this is not like a, a small thing. I mean, this is... There was so much more respect for authority figures. So this is... Um, presu so presumably, Paul was going around teaching people that the king lived in a certain way. Right, And because he lived in a certain way, if you wanted to be a part of his kingdom, you had to live in a certain way. 
That's the idea. So he's saying, that is not the way you learn Christ. I went to you, I taught you how the Messiah lived, how the king lived, and you need to live accordingly. Right? So verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So what is this truth um, that is in Jesus? This is defined for us in verses 22 through 24. So it says... First, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So, first we have putting off your old self, or really becoming a new human, right? This is what that means, to put off who you were before. In, in Greek, the, the word actually is, is man, to put off the old man. Right? Um, so, and when you do that, you are no longer living according to deceitful desires. So, this is, I, I think, really um, huge for, for us in general, um, but huge for our day the idea that des- desires are deceitful. So again, I, I mentioned the, the commercial. I mean, there are so many messages in our culture trying to deceive us into thinking that we can find satisfaction in empty things. And they are appealing to our desires that are naturally deceitful. So we will have a tendency to deceive ourselves when we look at these things. So it's very natural for us when we, you know, see the commercial about some, you know, appeal to sensuality, whether it be, you know, food, sex, money, anything, we have this thing inside of us that not only wants the thing, but deceives us into thinking that the thing is better than it is, and deceives us into thinking that we can have that and God, right? And that's something that we are going to look at for sure next week. Um, we we have this tendency to think that we can we can have um, really that God doesn't really demand as much as He does, right? That's the bottom line is that we we don't. We don't realize often how how much God demands, or we we downplay it. You know, everyone else does it. Every, I mean, um, all kinds of things that we say to ourselves. But Paul is saying that this is not how he taught them to live. This is not how he he taught them the King, the Messiah. Right? It involves putting off the old man. And therefore, ridding yourselves of these corrupt and deceitful desires. And in verse 23, being renewed in the spirit of your minds. So again, Paul, Paul is contrasting these two, two things. The, the old life, the, the old man, and the, the new life, the new man. So he says in the beginning that the Gentiles were walking in the futility of their minds. Here is, he is saying... You need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 
So, again, a huge thing in Paul, Romans 12, 1, um, you know, very popular verse about being, you know, having your mind renewed day by day. Um, what One thing to note is that in, in Greek, the putting off your old self, and in verse 24, the putting on the new self, are, are both um, one-time occurrences. But this renewing of your mind is, is habitual. So this is something that you have to do every single day. And it's hard. Right? Every single day, you and I are tempted to, to go back and be deceived by our deceitful desires and to live according to how all the nations live, how everyone else is, is living. Right? This is our temptation every single day. And every single day, we have to fight for our minds. Right? The battle for sin begins here. That, that's where it always begins. Always. You, you see something, and it enters into your mind, and you have to stop it in your mind. Right? So this is, this is something that we, we will need to do the rest of our lives, every breathing moment we have on earth. And this is what Paul said, right? This is the thing that he taught, the way, the way that Paul's um, converts were taught to live according to Christ was by doing this, to continually renew your mind. And then in 24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, this is a a one-time thing, putting on this new self or new man. Um, and again, this is created according to the likeness of God. So Paul is saying that the, the new creation, the new way to be human, right, begins with the mind. It overflows into a life that looks like God is living, right? It looks like Jesus. That's the idea. You're being an imitator of Jesus. So how, how is it like God in true righteousness and holiness? So this, this idea of true righteousness and holiness... Um, Again, it's, it's one of those things where like, it's, it's very easy for, for me to say, I'm going to try to be righteous today, right? Because what does that mean? You know, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what it practically means for me to say, I'm going to be righteous, I'm going to be holy. Right? These are very like, theoretical concepts. But Paul, Paul never leaves us in the clouds like this. Um, so in 25 through 32, he defines for us in very, very practical ways what the image of God looks like in our lives. What the new man looks like compared to the old man. So that's what we, we have um, here. You have in 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So, having put away falsehood. So, what, what does the falsehood belong to? The falsehood belongs to the, the old man, right? Rather, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. This belongs to the new man. This is actually a quote as well 
uh, it's not in my Bible, I don't know if it's in yours, but um, it's a quote from Zechariah 8.16. So, Paul um, and the New Testament writers never quote the Old Testament haphazardly. Um, they, they knew their Bibles really, really, really well. Um, probably much better than, than we can imagine. One interesting thing about, um, I mean, some of the things that I've learned over the past year is that um, during this time, they, they often quoted singular verses when they were thinking of the whole passage. So what they would want, to, they would, what they would do is remind you of the verse, and then um, in, in reminding you of the verse, or in, in writing the verse, they remind you of the whole passage, Right? So it's really interesting to see to see this context uh, in Zechariah eight sixteen. So it says, um, "These are the things that you shall do: speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate," declares the Lord. So. What is the, the context? So this is talking about God redeeming his people. And he says that I will be their God and they will be my people. Um, and they will, they will return to me. And he says that this is the commandment that he gives for that time. These are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Right? So Paul sees the, this redemption that has come. Right? And he looks back at Zechariah 8.16, sees this very similar redemption, and he says, just like Zechariah, God commanded Zechariah, right? Um, or God commanded through Zechariah to the people, speak the truth, right? When redemption comes, speak the truth. This is the, the thing that you need to, to do in the end. So I'm commanding you, right? This redemption has come. This is what you need to do. Put away all falsehood and speak the truth. Which is, again, very interesting for our day because this is something that we, we struggle with a lot. And it's, it's, speaking the truth is seen almost negatively. Um, it's because, well, first of all, it's way more important not to hurt someone's feelings in general. Right? If we can avoid hurting someone's feelings, we would much rather do that than speak the truth. Which... If, if from from many logical perspectives is crazy, but from an emotional perspective, it makes a whole lot of sense, especially when you're in the situation. Um, but this is not what what Paul says. The other reason why that we I think we really struggle with this truth idea is because it's often seen as um, very very blunt, very cold, right? We don't we don't always want the truth. What we want is someone to to hold our hands and make us feel better, right? A lot of times. But Paul says that this is a characteristic of what it means to live a redeemed life. This is something that, um, despite our, our culture's apprehensions about, about it, we have to do. And it obviously doesn't mean that we do so in a way that um, you know, would be necessarily offensive or would necessarily be cold, Right? You can, you can speak the truth in love. That is a very possible thing. Um, 
and that is what we're called to do. I think one of the, you know, the reasons why we speak the truth is because it theoretically um, would promote righteousness and holiness, right? The idea is that we would be speaking the truth, and the truth is found in God's Word. And so when we speak the truth, we, we don't speak the truth to be right, right? I mean, like, I, I don't, if we're having a discussion you know, about some random fact that you can look up on Google, like, that's, that's not, and you, you're sure you're right, that's not speaking the truth. Speaking the truth is, you know, standing up for those things that are righteous and holy, those things that conform to who God is, right, and calling others to do the same. And so when you, when you do that, you are living like Jesus did. Again, you can go to any gospel I mean, so many, so many passages where Jesus says very hard things, very hard things. And he's doing so out of love. He's speaking the truth because he knows that the truth is what changes us. The truth is what promotes the glory of God and the image of God inside of us. So that's that's why we speak the truth. And again, I don't think this is something that... Um, you know, we, we need help understanding as much as we just need help doing. Um, so we just have to do it. <laughs> um, there's not really too much else to it. So 26 and 27, so we've said falsehood belongs to the old man. We have um, truth belonging to the new man or the new human. I, I like it better to think of it as the new human. Um, obviously because it's man and woman, but um, also because it's a, it's a new creation, right? That's the idea. So 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So what does this mean, be angry and do not sin? Um, so this is coming from an Old Testament, again, uh, passage, Psalm 4-3, I think. Um, it's, it's an interesting conundrum here. The, the Hebrew word literally means to tremble. Um, it was translated into the Septuagint, the Greek translation, as to be angry, and it can, can imply that. So Paul's not, uh, you know, going crazy with this here, but I think... What's interesting is that the the idea of trembling is, um, I think, fits better what's going on here. So he's talking about a an emotional response, right? Be angry. Right? I mean, this is a command. Again, in the Old Testament, it's a command, right? Tremble, right? But don't sin, right? So he's the the commandment is not a you know something that you should do, but it's a concession. Right, so you you can tremble like this is this is permissible, right? But it's not permissible to to sin on account of that. So the idea of trembling again is something that is a very natural emotional response. You can't help if you see something that genuinely makes you angry or upset. You can't help but tremble or you know have some sort of response to it. What you can help is sinning because of it. Right? So he says that you are 
you are not just fighting against you know the emotion, right? What you're fighting against is the responses that would flow from your emotions. So the question for us is, you know, how do we how do we handle those types of things? He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So the idea is that when we have these emotional responses that might lead us to sin, we we fight to to not let them reside in us, right? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We, we have to, and again, this is something, I, I use the word fight intentionally because it's hard and you have to fight, um, but, but we, we try with all of our might to not, not just suppress our emotion, but to, to make our response to, to this emotion that we, we are feeling um, short, short-lived, right? So that we don't dwell in this anger and let the devil, right, exploit it for sin. That's, that's the idea. Because, again, this is something that we will get to later in Ephesians, but the devil actually is fighting against you to exploit our emotions for sin, right? And if there's one thing that the devil is good at exploiting, it is our emotions, right? Because what Paul has said that the foundation of our new life in Christ and the old life, right, is the mind. And the thing about the mind is that at least sometimes it's rational, but emotions are not, right? So it's very, very easy for Satan to take advantage of things that are not rational. When we're not thinking through things, it's very easy for us to just slip into to sin, right? To be angry and sin. So, he says we need to, as much as possible, when we have these emotions, don't let them be short-lived so that we can continue to think clearly, right? And so our responses to these types of things can be one of godliness, right? Which flows from a renewed mind. Again, this is part of renewing the spirit of your minds every single day. So 28, again, I think this is a a very interesting one. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we've been seeing these these contrasts, right? Um, Falsehood, truth, um, giving opportunity for the devil, harboring anger, um, not harboring anger. Here we have a contrast between the old man, the old human, right, which would um, advocate, you know, for stealing, and we have the new man or the new human who would advocate for laboring, doing honest work, um, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's, I think it's very easy for us to just skip over the first part. Okay, well, I don't, you know, make a habit of thievery. So this is not that important to me. Um, it, it is, I think, noteworthy that the um, Jesus consistently points to the heart in these things. So you you might not have stolen, but 
in, in many ways, covetousness is the same thing. Um, it's just the precursor. You know, it's, it's just like lust is the precursor to adultery. It's, and Jesus says if you've committed lust, you've committed adultery, right? Same idea here. Um, so, so, but he's contrasting this thief, right, who's stealing presumably for himself, right? So he is giving into his covetous desires. And he's contrasting that with someone who works with his hands so that he might give to anyone who has need. So what's interesting for us is that I think we're often somewhere in between these. So um, it's very easy for us to say, okay, I I don't make a habit of stealing. Um, But the question for us is that do we labor so that we may give something to anyone who has need, right? So when you go to work tomorrow morning, is your mindset, I am going to, to work so that I can obtain resources to give to those in need, right? That is a, a different question than saying, I'm going to, you know, go, go to work and even even live responsibly, right? Like this this is a this is a different standard, right? To say I am getting these resources not for myself, right? But for others who have need. So the idea, again, we have these these two extremes: the thief who steals for himself, rather than the one who labors for others, right? You. Again, this is a, a shift that needs to happen in our in our thinking about about work. I mean, work in itself is is a good thing. I mean, I think the new heavens and new earth, you will be working. That's what I think. Um, another topic for another day. But the the resources that we take in today for working are not for ourselves. Like that that is the idea is that you you do you don't even have the right to choose what you do with your resources because they're not yours right the idea is that they are gods they are the kings and so you you don't get to to make a budget in the sense that you get to choose you know yourself selfishly where everything goes right you, you have been given resources, so you have to make a budget in that sense. But in order to follow the king, you must make a budget according to how he would do it, right? And he consistently gives to those who are in need. So that's, that's the idea. And that is why we work, right? That's, he says, so that you can give to someone who has need, right? One of the reasons, at least, why we work. So verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So again, we're looking at the contrast. There is this corrupting talk that comes out of your mouth. This belongs to the old human. Um, But the new human, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
So, again, I think it's easy for us to to fall somewhere in between, right? It's easy for us to say, well, I I don't really have that much corrupting talk out of my mouth, right? I, I don't really... Um, the, the, it's a really interesting word here that's used. It's it, it's the it's the word that's used for bad fruit or rotten fruit, um, like con- consistently throughout the New Testament. Um, I mean, you know, the idea is that you would you would have things that come out of your mouth that spoils things, right? Or corrupts or rot makes things rotten. Um, and specifically makes others rotten, right? You, but the the flip side, such only such as is good for building up. So again, we, we look at this and say, okay, well, you know, I don't always have this uh, this corrupting talk come out of my mouth, but I don't always say things to build up either, right? I'm somewhere in between. Um, which I, I, I think you, you can be um, in one sense. In, in another sense, I think the, um, you know, the, Jesus clear, pretty clearly draws a distinction you know, between those who are for him and those who are against him. You can be for him, you can be um, on his team, or you can not be. Right? If you're on his team, great. If not, then you are against him. It doesn't really matter what you're doing, right? You can live the rest of your life and not say, you know, quote-unquote, corrupting, terrible things, but you can never work for God. You can never say things that build up, and you would not be following this commandment, right? If you just said, like, empty things the rest of your life, which is very, very possible, many, many people um, do this, you, you would not be... L- on God's team in this sense, right? You would not, this is not what God has commanded us. Um, so the question for us is, again, how, how are we doing with building people up? And what does it mean to build people up? In particular, I think it means to, to promote this righteousness and holiness that we've been talking about. So all of these things, right? We, we need to encourage one another to go to work to labor for others in need. We need to encourage one another to have appropriate emotional responses to things, to speak truth, right? These are all things that you will do very poorly at if you are doing them by yourself and you have no one else helping you to do them, right? No one else encouraging you. The, the whole idea in New Testament is, is not that um, you know, each one of us would just be doing our own thing, but that we would each day help each other being, to be built up into the life of Christ. Right? There, there, there are not um, multiple bodies. Right? Christ is not divided. So the, the idea is that there's one, one church, one body of Christ... And that one church has to work together to build itself up. So that is our, is our calling for our words, right? To have all of our words give grace, promote grace for the hearers, right? Again, 
this is so much more than just not saying bad things. Right? This is such a higher standard. This is the standard of Christ, right? The standard of, of our King. So verse 30, we come to um, something that just seems out of place. Um, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, it seems out of place. I mean, all of a sudden we've lost the contrast, right? Um, between the new man and the old man. There's no... And it, it's... Many commentators have noted, you know, what is this doing here? Um, so, one interesting... So, okay, in general, I think that this idea, again, goes back to the Old Testament. Um, so, in Isaiah 63, uh, 63 verses 9 and 10, says, in, in all their affliction... Um, Actually, we'll just read 10. But they rebelled, um, they being God's people, and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. So, the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit is not a, a light thing. In Isaiah 63, um, it means that you are God's enemy. Um... And God turns to to be against those people. So here it's hard to know in in our passage in Ephesians, it's hard to know exactly who um, who Paul is talking about. Is he talking about the old man or the new man? Right? These people who grieve the Holy Spirit um, are they are they God's enemies? You know, in Isaiah sixty three, presumably they were they would be the old man. Um, or are they, you know, part of, you know, the new man who is struggling, right? So I think the question um, doesn't matter too much. I, I think the answer lies more in, again, how we understand Paul's general um, commandment to walk according to these things. So... You, you can theoretically grieve the Holy Spirit, and you would grieve the Holy Spirit whenever you, you sin, right? So there is a sense in which, you know, we are truly grieving the Spirit when we sin. There's another sense in which you can grieve the Holy Spirit by, by continually disobeying, and you make God your enemy, as in Isaiah. Um, so, what I think is important for us is not to to figure out you know exactly who this is talking about, but to to be reminded of of what sin does to God, right? When you when you think about um, the the majesty of who God is, right? He created everything in existence. I mean, it's it is absolutely mind-blowing to think about who God is, what kind of being He is. I mean, if we actually think about this this being and the descriptions that we have of Him. In, in Isaiah 40, it says that, you know, all of the earth, all of the nations are counted as nothing. 
that they're all like a drop in the bucket, that they're like dust on scales. So, I mean, again, this is so hard for us in our culture. It's so easy for us as Americans to think that we are like on top of the world because we are in some sense. Um, you know, we, we, we do live in the, the most you know, prosperous, powerful nation in the world, um, or at least one of them. But God says that everything, ev- every nation is nothing. He says it's less than nothing. I don't, I don't even know what that means, to be less than nothing. But that's everything, right? And so God, who is all-powerful, massive, beyond our understanding, is, is grieved when we, when we do even the, the smallest of sins. So I, I want us to think about how seriously he takes sin, right? You, you and I are, are nothing compared to him from a purely physical standpoint, right? Nothing. All the nations are nothing. But when it comes to sin, even our smallest inclinations, even our smallest withdrawals away from his presence and into sin and temptation grieve him. Right? This is, this is an incredible truth and a, a humbling truth um, that, that we need to take seriously. Again, this is not something that we need to theoretically understand better. It's something that we need to live better. Right? This is not high theology. This is, this is something that our hearts need to be affected by. Right? To have the same sort of grievance over sin as God. And to take seriously. I mean, you would be... Let's say, for example, right? How, how worried are we about the life of an ant? Not, not very, very worried, right? So if he or she, I don't... Uh, the ant does something, right, that we deem to be, quote-unquote, wrong, we think nothing of it, Right? It would mean nothing to us. But to God, this is the, the only thing that grieves him. Right? He's perfectly content being by himself and being in communion, the Trinity in communion with each other. Right? Perfectly content. Does not need us. But yet, he, he wants us and he's grieved when we are disobedient to his word. And if we are going to be like Christ, that is how we need to view sin as well, right? That this is our chief grievance. And, and that, that is our, I mean, the question for us this morning, how, how often are we grieved when, when you know, bad, bad quote-unquote, bad things happen to us, calamity, disaster, you know, things that are worldly bad compared to how much are we grieved when we sin? Right? That's, that's the question. Are we, are we grieved when, you know, we have things that hurt our comfort, things that hurt our, our desires, our own, um, you know, goals and dreams? Or are we grieved when we are led into sin? Right? 
And that, that question reveals our hearts. It reveals, are, are we more concerned about ourselves and our own kingdom, or are we concerned about Jesus and His? So, last two things, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So here we return back to the old and the new man contrast. 31, we have the human. I keep saying man. Uh, 31, we have the old human. Right? In 32, we have the, the new human. So he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So I don't think it's, um, you know, the, each individual word is, is that significant here as much as the word all. So all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This is not, Paul is not saying that you need to put away all of these things, but your other sins are okay, right? It's a list that gives some examples of sin that all of which should be put away. So we can see Paul doing this a lot. For example, in the in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh, um, in verse 519, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, robberies, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Right? So this is not an exhaustive list. That's not the point. The point is that all of these things that belong to the old human need to be put away. All of it. And then, they need to be replaced, in 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Again, not an exhaustive list, but they need to be replaced with the character of God. And so he says, in particular, here, the character of God is kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. So, the the forgiving one is, is, I think, a huge one. Um... You know, our, I, I, I was reminded, um, I read a C.S. Lewis uh, thing on forgiveness. It's actually really, really good. Um, it's probably like two pages, but he just a little blurb about forgiveness. And he, he mentions this passage in Matthew 6, um, 14 and 15 really encourage you to read his little thing on forgiveness um, I think I think it's actually just called on forgiveness but he says in, in he mentions Matthew 6 14 15 for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses so again this is something that is uh, difficult it's, it is not something that is hard to understand. It's very, very clear. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't, your Father will not forgive you. It is very, very clear. You cannot be a true Christian. You cannot be... A, you, you, you don't have 
the new human inside of you. You haven't put off the old human if you do not forgive others. You don't, right? That's what Jesus says. You will not be forgiven if you don't forgive others. It's very simple. Very hard, but very simple. Because this is a reflection, again, of who God is. If you are unwilling to forgive others, you can't say that God's life resides inside of you. It just doesn't work like that. And again, we see that this is our standard, the life of the Messiah, right? the life of the King. Paul said that you learned Christ in a certain way. Paul went and taught people that there, there are certain things you have to do in order to be a Christian. There are certain lifestyle practices that you have to implement in your life. If you want to be a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus, you can't be idle, right? And I know this, I'm not talking about earning your salvation. It's always the question, right? I don't, I don't really care how you fit it into your theological system. The, the reality is that he says that if you, Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, you're not going to be forgiven, right? Again, doesn't matter how you fit that in. It does matter if you believe it, right? It's very, very simple. So, we, in 31 and 32, we learn that it's, it's, not, um, it's not these little points that we need to do, but we need to put away everything that belonged to the old human, right? And this is a monumental task to say that everything in my old life, all of the desires that I had, and all of the, the corrupt things, that the way I thought, the way I lived, all of that has to go, and I have to replace all of it with the life of Jesus, right? That is a, a massive statement. One, again, that it will take the rest of our lives, every single day, to do, right? You will need to renew your mind in this every single moment. Even as we have sat here, I have had to do it, right? We have had to do it. This is our calling as Christians, right? This is what it means to be followers of Christ, to be true Christians, true disciples. It means to replace the old human with the new. And in so doing, we show the new creation, right? We sh- we're showing others what it means to live like God. We're, and in doing so, we're showing others God, right? We are God's representatives on this earth. I, I Being in Israel for a year, I, I would have... I didn't understand how huge the the idea of the temple was until I, I got there. And it's not there anymore. But there, the, the, the platform is still there. So there's a massive platform that the temple sat on. And today the, the, Dome, of the, Ro- the Dome of the Rock is there, which is another crazy thing. But... Um, the Jews, they, they, you probably heard of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. The Jews go to the, the Western Wall because it's the closest that they can get to the Holy of Holies. They, they, most of them won't go up on the top of the Temple Mount because they, they, don't, they don't want to accidentally step in the place where the Holy of Holies was. Right? So the, they take this very, very seriously. And 
But the reason why is because the presence of God dwelt in the temple, right? That was, that was the whole thing. When Paul uses the metaphor, I, I still, it's hard for me to wrap my head around what that means. But when Paul uses the metaphor as, as us, as the temple, it means that we, we aren't just, we don't just have God living inside of us, but we bring God's presence wherever we go. So that when we go somewhere, they should feel differently because of us, because God is there. Right? People would go into the Holy of Holies and they would die. Right? There would be people who would die in the presence of God. It was that powerful. It was that, that um, unhuman. Right? It was so different. than. That's why it's called holy. It was so utterly different than us. Right? And we, are the, we should be the same way. We should be so different than the old way of living that people feel God's presence when we, when we are around them because we're pointing them towards truth, right? Because we, we are working for a different purpose because we speak words that build up, right? All of these things are, are a reflection of who God is because we forgive people no matter what they do, right? That is a, a type of forgiveness that is different. It's, it's God-wrought, Right? That's, that's the idea. So, Paul, in this passage, is, is calling us to something that is, is not possible. Right? It is not possible for us to do this on our own strength. But it is something that God, through His Spirit, inevitably does. Right? And when I say that, I... I the last thing I want to do is just encourage us. I, I don't want to suggest that this is something that we um, that just doesn't take work, right? So many times people just think, like, "Oh, I I became a Christian and somehow things things didn't uh, didn't all just get better, right? I, I wasn't just a better person, right? I mean, it doesn't work like this. You have to renew your mind all the time. You you have to fight against your deceitful desires." You have to fight for your emotional responses. All, all of these things, right? And Paul's going to use the metaphor of fighting later. But all of these things need to be things that we, we work for, right? And again, I don't... The, the question of, you know, working for your salvation, it's not here. It's not in the text, so I'm not concerned with it. But Paul's point, right, is that we need to take these things seriously. And my question for us is, you know, how, how seriously do we take it? How much do we work for this new man, to be like this new human? You know, it's, it's very, very easy um, to find someone who, you know, will get up at 5.30 in the morning and work out for an hour, right? Consistently, every single day, because he or she is committed to, to the end result, Right? And they, they take it very seriously. I mean, there are people who, you know, will train for months to run a marathon, right? How, how seriously, practically, how much are we training ourselves to live like Christ? Right? That's, that's the question. How much, 
How much discipline are we implementing in our lives to be like Him? Because it takes work, right? It is, I'm just telling you, it is guaranteed not going to happen overnight. Just like working out, you don't just get buff overnight, right? doesn't happen. And it will be hard. It will cost sweat, tears, those types of things. That's the attitude we have to have towards it. And that's how we have to treat it, right? So I would just encourage all of us, myself included, obviously, to, to fight for this, to, to labor, to put on the new man, beginning with our mind, and to live according to, to how Christ lived. So let's pray. God, we are so humbled that you invite us into your presence. Lord, the, the fact that we can come before you right now and pray is truly a mind-blowing experience. Lord, I ask that we would never lose sight of how incredible it is to know you, to have the opportunity to know you. Lord, I ask that we would take advantage of all of the resources we've been given, all of these people around us who, who want to see us grow up into, into mature Christians. Lord, I ask that we would be the people that, that you have called us to be, that we would live as, as humans that are different, that we would consider this way of living to, to not only be our duty, but our joy. So Lord, I, I thank you again for, for all that you've done. It truly is overwhelming how well you have loved us and how, how much you've given us. And I just ask that we would use every bit of love you've given to us and opportunities you've given to us to serve you, that we would use all of it for your glory. That we would use all of it to become like you, to live according to how you would live. Lord, I just thank you again for this time and this church. And please help us all as we live through this week. Um, help us all to labor for, for your kingdom and to be like you. In your son's name, amen. <laughs>